0: Been in a series called Rooted in Christ, and we took a two-week break from it uh, when we had Dean Johnson here and Pastor Rob preach last week for us. Um, But we've been in this series in the study of the Book of Colossians, and I challenged you when we began this series several weeks back. I challenged you to read Colossians if you haven't read it in one setting. I, I still challenge you to do that because this whole book really is about what it means to live a life that is rooted in Christ and all that that means. And we've talked about some of that. that we talked about the faith that we need to have in Christ. We talked about how Christ is supreme, how there is a supremacy in Christ over all things. And then today I want to talk about another aspect of how we can be rooted in Christ. But before we get there, I want to, I want to ask a question that kind of serves as the, the anchor point for this talk today out of Colossians. And the question is this What event or circumstance? would cause you to give up on your faith. I mean, think about it, because you know somebody who's done this. You know somebody who had faith in Christ, who had hope in Christ, and then something in their life happened that did not reconcile with their faith in Christ. And so because of that, they chose to walk away from their faith in Christ Jesus. You know somebody. Maybe, maybe what that would be for you is maybe that would be the death of a loved one. Lord, how could that happen to me? I thought I believed in you. I thought you were a healer, and so this happens. And maybe for you that would become the line in the sand. Or maybe it might be a physical or, or mental illness that... You're now going, God, I I thought when I loved Jesus and followed him, great things happened and good things happened in my life, and this is not good, therefore you're not good, therefore I don't want to follow you. Or maybe for you, it might be a relational breakup. Maybe it would be financial hardship. Things were going good, finances seemed to be there, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, you lost your job, and you lost your means of ability to keep doing what you've been doing, and you're kind of going, I thought you were a provider. What would have to happen in your life to cause you to walk away or to give up on your faith? Because you know somebody who's been there. In fact, just raise a hand if you can say, yeah, I know somebody who's been there. Something happened, and today they're not following Jesus. Maybe that's happened to you, and you've come back around today. You know, maybe it's not just necessarily walking away from faith. Maybe you're here today, and it's not the danger of walking away from your faith, but perhaps it's feeling as though your best days are behind you. That good times happened back then, but you've entered a season of life now where you don't have a lot of hope for the future. And when you think about tomorrow, you don't look at tomorrow with hope. Instead, you look at tomorrow as kind of like, maybe I'll exist. Maybe I'll just eke out an existence tomorrow, but... Nothing good is going to happen. So you have no hope. And what happens? When you have no hope for the future, then what begins to happen is you begin to become apathetic. You really don't care. And you become cynical. Cynical about life or about God and pretty soon you've lost the ability to look forward. Because some season of your life has come to an end and you don't seem like you have anything left out in front of you to look forward to. Or maybe for others, it's that you've just accomplished a significant milestone in your life. Maybe it was graduation from college, or maybe it was nailing that career, or maybe it was retirement. Some of you are like, yes, I finally retired, or or you you got in that relationship you were just dying to be in, and that carried some momentum for a while, but then you kind of found yourself on the backside of the wave of that momentum, and you're not sure what step to take next. And it leaves you feeling a little bit disoriented because that was a good ride. Good things had happened. But now you've discovered I'm kind of in this place where I'm not sure what my next step is. I'm not sure what to do next. And it leaves you feeling kind of aimless and disoriented and maybe even uncertain about what to do. I want to challenge you this morning with this truth that could have been the Apostle Paul's story. Let me explain. See, Paul, you can find his life story in the book of Acts. That's where you learn more about what Paul happened in his life. But we discover in, in, in Acts chapter 9 that he actually gets saved. Here's Paul, remember, who was an enemy of the church. He was a Pharisee of the Jewish religion. And when the Christian movement began to explode with growth, he saw it as his personal mission. In fact, he was zealous to stop it. And so he was given permission to even go and arrest Christians. He was present, giving approval, the day that Stephen, that young, zealous Christ follower, was stoned. He was there giving approval and proud of what was happening to end this horrific Christian movement. Well, he's on his way to arrest Christians. You might recall the story in Acts chapter 9 where Christ appears to him on this road, and he is transformed. He is saved, and he, he is commissioned. In fact, He was commissioned in a way that he never saw coming. I mean, think about it. He had been totally an enemy of the church, right? And all of a sudden, his life was taking an extreme turn. And uh, there was a guy named Ananias who was a Christ follower. And the Lord spoke to him about Saul. And Ananias was a little worried because he had heard about Saul. The same guy as Paul. I'm not interchanging. He's called Saul and Paul in the Bible. All right. Some say Saul was pre-Jesus, Paul was post-Jesus. I don't know. Um, But regardless, he's heard about Paul. Reputation's kind of preceded him. He knows this guy's not a good guy, and he's a little skeptical about this conversion. But the Lord says to Ananias this, and you'll see it in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go, because this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias has a conversation with Saul. He's he's kind of confirmed in his faith. He's baptized. And indeed, exactly everything the Lord said happened in Paul's ministry. He began... Eventually, a traveling ministry of missions work throughout the Roman Empire that established these key churches in key cities throughout the empire. And the church began to explode with growth as Paul traveled around preaching, proclaiming Christ, planting churches, helping develop leaders, and then moving on to a new area. And then he'd usually write a letter back to that church to encourage them in some areas where they needed to make some changes. And he went from being an enemy of the church to kind of like the hero Right? out there doing pioneering ministry work that was incredible and extremely successful. And even though his ministry was very successful, it wasn't without suffering. It wasn't without hardship. It wasn't without its struggles. And this is the part of our Christian faith we have to come to terms with because I believe that we have bought into a convenient, comfortable Christian faith on this side of the church, we have to look back at the book of Acts and see that if we're living on mission, we can expect some suffering. We can expect some hardship. We can expect some things that don't seem to make sense to us. We can expect criticism. We can expect harm. In fact, look at what Paul he, he kind of lists, and he's not listing this in Corinthians as kind of a woe is me. This wasn't a Facebook post to get sympathetic friends to say, oh, I'm so sorry, it's so hard. Um, this is just Paul, he's kind of talking about what's going on in his life. There's these super Christians out there that the church is following and how they're these great Christ leaders and, and kind of undermining Paul, right? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. In other words, I wouldn't normally talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger, get at the fact he was in danger, right? In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger of false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concerns for all the churches. Woe is me. No, that's not really what he said. And his point wasn't to draw sympathy. But why did these things happen to Paul? Some people might look at this and go, Paul, I think you got some sin. I think you're making some bad choices. No, Paul was doing exactly what Jesus commissioned him to do. He was right where God wanted him to be. And these things happened to him. See, this is the part of our Christian faith we have to come to terms with because people have walked away from God, have walked away from hope in Christ, because they thought Christianity was happy roses, yellow brick roads. It was all happy endings. And the one time life wasn't that way, they were like, forget it. I thought Jesus was like a good luck charm that everything happened up and to the right. See, what I love about Paul, because I need to get better at this personally, is he never played the victim. He knew where his hope rested. He never said, oh, woe is me, everybody feel bad for me because my Christian life is a mess. And he he didn't go on Facebook and barf about all the bad stuff happening around him and woe is me, everybody like my post or give me a little weepy face or something that shows that you actually care. He never did that. He never Did that. Now, here's the thing. At the time of him writing Colossians, it wasn't any better for Paul. He was in prison, chained to a Roman soldier. Okay, I want you to enter this story with me for a minute, okay? All this stuff had happened. We just read about a laundry list of terrible things that have happened. It's not his first time in prison, okay? But once again, he's in prison, he's chained to a Roman soldier. He doesn't have the freedom to travel. If he was to look at what he was doing now versus what he was doing then, he would say, this is hopeless. I can't do anything significant for God now because I'm chained to a Roman soldier in a Roman prison. I guess for me, ministry is over. My best days were behind me. And he could have sat back and had his woe-is-me moment and said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. But this letter in Colossians is proof that's not how Paul dealt with it. It's proof that Paul said, you know, I'm not done. I think God's got some stuff for me to do. Yeah, my, my, my situation has changed, but I think God still has a plan for me. And what I love about Paul is whatever the season was that came his way, he saw God in it, and he saw Christ at work in it. And he said, okay, I might have to change my approach. I might have to change my perspective about it. I might have to change the way that I deal with this now because I can't just walk around the Roman Empire now and preach Christ. I don't have the massive crowds I used to have. I have a guy who probably doesn't want to hear me talk about Jesus. And I have visitors who come and go, but I don't have the The masses I used to preach to, I don't have this church planning. I don't have the passion of preaching Christ out in the open or in the synagogue or wherever the gathering places were, and here he is chained. He could have said, my best days are done and behind me, but he didn't. He knew that Christ still had a plan and purpose for him right where he was, even when it didn't make sense. Why? Because Paul had a hope in Christ, And I want to talk about that today because I believe there are people in the room, because I've been here before, where my hope was being shaken. But I've had to learn how to sink it deeply in Christ when nothing else made sense. So hope in Christ. How to move forward even when right now doesn't make sense. How did Paul do all of this? How could he face such horrific things, and now imprisonment, and still feel like God's got something for him. Because Paul knew something that I think we all need to hear today, and this is what he knew. He knew that the close of a season is not the end of a destiny. The close of a season is not the end of a destiny. Let me explain. When we find our purpose in God, which, by the way, all of you have, maybe you're here and you're skeptical about God. I'm glad you're here. I challenge you to read the Bible with an open heart. But I believe this, that we don't find our true purpose until we find it in God who created us. Now, you might have great abilities and skills, but once you find God, you find a way to use those in a way that he's planned for you to use them. So I believe that as followers of Christ, we're all destined for his purposes. But how many know that in life there are seasons that come and go? There are seasons that come and go. I, by the way, was going to be a children's pastor until I die. That's what I believed about 26 years ago. I was going to be a children's pastor until Jesus takes me home. I did that for about 17 years. But a new season came. Another season came. And then this season came. And then we as a church went through a season where we sold an old building and got out of debt and moved into a new building and began to see God's favor pouring out upon this church. And there's seasons. And maybe you've had seasons personally. Maybe you've come to a point where you're at the end of something, wondering what's next. And maybe in that place, you're kind of wondering, does God have something for me? Can I just remind you, the end of a season is not the end of a destiny. Just because something is over does not mean that you have permission from God to stop. In fact, I, I like to say it this way. As long as you have life and breath, God has a plan for your next step. All right, it's almost kind of poetic. It's easy to remember. As long as I have life and breath, God has a plan for my next step. He does. You might not know what it is right now. You might look forward and it's all a fog and you can't see in front of you, but can I just tell you that He's there. He's got a plan for you. He's not done with you. Whatever your situation is right now, God is not done with you. It's not over. On our journey of faith, I've discovered that there are Times in, in my faith where I feel like I'm at the top of a mountain, and you look out, and there's just vistas of beauty. You look around and go, wow, isn't this so awesome? Life is so good, and I feel so close to God, because here I'm on top of a mountain, right? And, and you look out over that vista and go, oh, this is beautiful. Life is good. The family's good. Ministry's good. Maybe you've all been at a vista before where, like, everything was right. And then in those days where you feel like you just tumbled 3,000 feet down into the crack of a valley. And you look around, and there's darkness, and there's sounds of spooky animals, and it's a terrible place to be. David equates it to kind of like the valley of the shadow of death, where there's bandits waiting. There's things waiting to steal from you, to take joy from you, and maybe you're there right now. You're in this valley. You're wishing for the vista once again, and you're wondering, is God done with me? No. But what comes to mind What's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word suffering? Because in some manner, all of you will suffer. All of us are going to struggle in some area of life. What comes to mind when you hear the word suffer? You know, I would guess that for most of us in the room, the first word that comes to mind is not rejoicing. Now, we've been trained as good, old-fashioned humans that when suffering comes, the first thing in mind is some kind of complaint, anger, bitterness, why, questioning, right? But you know what? When Paul faced suffering, he faced it differently. In fact, we're going to look at it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to use it. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you have a smart device, we do encourage you to use those as well. There's a Bible app there for you. Um, Also, I want to remind you that you can also download the church app, Neighborhood Church app. It's just go to your store, look for Neighborhood Church, and then put the word Share Faith with your search, Neighborhood Church Share Faith. That's who hosts our uh, app for us. And you'll find our app, and our notes are there as well, as as well as the audio recordings of all our messages. But Colossians chapter 124, he says this, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Now, if you were just to stop and look at that sentence, you would say, These are two conflicting words. Rejoice, suffering. Those don't belong in the same sentence, Paul. And you certainly wouldn't say, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering. That means he's in it right now. This isn't like, I rejoiced when. How many know you can look back and go, Oh, yeah, I can now see why. The suffering. It makes sense now. And then you can kind of rejoice back to what happened then because you're not in it, but you can look back and go, oh yeah, thank you, God. That was good. I rejoice. No, he's saying I'm rejoicing in it right now, prison to a Roman guard, even as I'm dictating this letter to you Colossians who I've never met, but I'm suffering for you. He goes on to say, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. In other words, Christ suffered, friends, and guess what? We are too. We are too. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. You're going, well, what is this mystery? Keep reading. Keep reading. To make uh, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think for some of you, if you're a Bible marker kind of person, you might want to mark that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How could Paul be rejoicing in his, in his suffering? Because he knew he wasn't in his suffering alone. He knew Christ is in me. And he is my hope for glory. He goes on to say, He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. We'll talk more about that next week. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. As you read that section out of Colossians chapters 1 and 2, these are not the words of a man who has given up, are they? No, in fact, if you look at these passages, he twice uses a word in verse 29 and then in verse 1. Of chapter two, he uses the word contend. Now we think about the word contend as a contender, and we think about what boxing, fighting, you know, because there's some kind of movie. I could have been a contender, right? I mean, so we we, we kind of think about fighting, and that's exactly what Paul's doing, friends. He says, "I'm in prison, I'm in suffering, but guess what? I strenuously contend for you." In other words. He's not given up. How could Paul do that? Because these are the words of a man whose hope is firmly fixed in Christ. But these are also the words of a man who knew what it was like to face the battlefield of doubt, of uncertainty, of hopelessness. I mean, Paul is human. Okay? He's probably come to those points where he feels the tension between his love for God and his mission for Jesus and then all the junk that was happening in his life. I'm sure like us, he's felt that tension. But let me help you understand something. If you're currently in transition in some manner of life, either from some season of life and you're not sure what is next, or from loss and you're just kind of left wondering, if you're in this transition, let me help you understand that between the end of what you just experienced and what God has for you next, okay? because he does, Right? As long as you have life and breath, God has plans for your next step, all right? So in this space between something coming to an end and something beginning, that's a crossroads that leads to a battlefield. Let me explain. It's there that your faith is tested. In fact, you could say it this way, that between the end of one chapter and the beginning of a next chapter, there's a battlefield, And that battlefield is, will I trust that God still has a plan for me as I move forward? Or will I stop? Will I begin to try to make it make sense for me and do what I feel like I should do? Or will I trust him? So there's this this battlefield there. And here's the deal. The enemy of your souls wants you to feel like you have come to a dead end. That whatever you did before is over. And there is no hope. He wants you to believe as though there was nothing but hopelessness and despair that you are done and that God is done with you. I'm sure he whispered those words to Paul in his lonely moments in the evenings. I'm sure he could have whispered to Paul, Paul, look, look what's happening to you. Just give up. I mean, he did the same to Jesus in his most vulnerable moments, right? Right? The wilderness, he was fasting for 40 days, he was weak, and that's where the enemy struck. And he does that in the areas of our weakness, and those are battlefields. When we're not sure what to do next, that's where the enemy would step in. But let me remind you that when you feel like you've reached the end and it's hopeless and there's nothing else for you, that is simply a temporary illusion that the devil is trying to make you believe. God has never done with you. In fact, if I can trust God with the closing seasons, which which I've had to. There have been a lot of seasons that have not closed well in my life. And I've wondered why, God. But if I can trust him with how he's closed the season, I can certainly trust him that he has better things for me in the end. In fact, any time when you feel like it couldn't get any worse, right? Let me tell you that right in those moments, God says, hang on, because the best is yet to come. Isaiah 61 says it this way. In fact, this is before I read it. Isaiah 61 is the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament, and he is speaking about the coming Messiah, the one who would come and what he would do. Now, Jesus, by the way, is the one. In fact, Jesus takes this passage of Isaiah and reads it as kind of the inauguration of his public ministry. But listen to what the prophet says, because I believe this is a word for some of you here today. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty. Instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Why was Paul able to continue contending? Because he knew the power of the gospel of Jesus. What does the gospel do? The gospel has an ability to bring beauty where there's nothing but ashes, to bring joy and gladness where there is mourning. Some of you are in this season where you feel like your life is nothing but ashes. Things have crumbled down around you and you're kind of going, okay, I could either woe is me this moment or I could say, wait a second, last I checked, God did stuff in these kinds of places. In fact, he brings beauty from ashes the time that prophet Isaiah was speaking these words, things were not well for Israel. Things looked like ashes, looked like devastation. But God has a way of turning the tables and saying, when you think it's the worst, hang on because I still have more for you. In fact, the best might still be in front of you. And those were the results worth contending for. Paul knew there were people in Colossa, there were people in Laodicea that were going through difficult times that the gospel could bring them freedom and hope. And so that's why he didn't give up. That's why he kept contending. In fact, he uses these words. This word contend, in fact, it's, it's strenuously contend, he says. It is actually from the Greek word "agonazomai," which means... To agonize. I mean, you ever heard of the term agonize before? I mean, we think about it in kind of a, you know, my back hurts, my hip hurts, I'm in agony. But agonize really is this idea of fighting through, of striving through. That's like how I faced school sometimes as a kid. I would agonize my way through school that day, right? I would fight through it. I would contend through it. This is what Paul experienced. So how could he press through when there was agony? How could he agonize for the Colossians and for the Laodiceans? How could he do that? Because he knew a secret that he shared with them. And he said, I'm not doing this in my own strength. I'm not facing my suffering in my own human Paul strength. He said, Christ is, his energy is at work through me. Friends, when you face what you're facing alone, you're not facing it alone. You might feel like you are, but you're not. Stop and say, wait, wait. Paul talked about the hope, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And if he is in me, that same power that raised Christ from the dead can be at work in my mortal body, the strength that I need. In fact, he discovered this great balance between the fact that, yes, we have to do, we have to be active in the process, but Jesus is also there. And it was that Jesus that Paul spoke of in Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's how he faced the whips, the shipwrecks. I could see him out in the open sea, hopefully floating onto a piece of board saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I could see him facing the Jews who whipped him now 38 times. His back is open and bleeding, about to receive the last lash. And he would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can see his friends walking away from him, shaking their head at Paul because enough is enough, Paul. We can't do this with you anymore. It's hurting us. Being abandoned by friends and him saying, I can do all Through Christ who strengthens me. What do you hear at night? In the moments that you're in right now, do you hear, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Or do you hear something else? See, friends, we have to recognize where our hope is. Paul knew that. It's his energy at work in me. And here's the deal. Christ can energize your life, enabling you to thrive in any situation, good, bad, in the middle. He can energize your life so that you can thrive in all of those situations. And that is the hope we discovered that Paul had, and I hope it's the hope that you have because here's what hope does. Hope in Christ helps you to believe the best for the future. He's not done with you. You can hope for the best of the future. No matter where you are right now, you cannot look at the future through your past regrets or failures, disappointment out of your past hurt. You can't do that. you got to look at the future knowing I'm rooted in Christ and He can help me. And He has my future in mind. And He has good for me. Let me share with you what is kind of one of my favorite verses, and maybe it's underlined in your Bible too, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I love how we lift verses from the Bible that give us hope, but I want to read this, and I want to put this verse right back in the context from which we lifted it from. But in Jeremiah 29, 11, the prophet says on behalf of the Lord, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, you could definitely see this printed across the walls of your house, right? You can see it cross-stitch on a pillow. You can see it printed on your mirror, because this is a verse we all love. Now, let me put this verse back in its context, all right? Jeremiah was a prophet who was speaking to the Israelites who were in captivity in Babylon. All right, so here's what happened. They had their land of promise. They had Israel, the land flung with milk and honey and all those beautiful things, and life was good. They had kings, and man, things were good. But they turned their back on God continually, and God said, you know, you keep doing that, you're going to lose the land. I'm going to take you out of here, and that's exactly what happened. They were taken out of their land of promise, moved a 1,000 miles away, and now they're captives in Babylon under the... Rule of a different king, not one of their own kings. They've lost their sense of national pride. They've lost their temple. They've lost all those things that they actually thought they enjoyed. And now they're in captivity, and it's in that place of despair and darkness and hopelessness when they thought their dreams were shattered now because their land has been torn apart. It was there in the despair, in the darkness, in that moment. Prophet said, "I know the plans I have for you. There are plans to pro- This doesn't feel like prospering God. This feels very much unlike prosper. There are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you a hope. Hope, we're in Babylon. Hope is back in our home. I'm going to give you a hope in a future. That's where he spoke it. Yes, this verse is pretty easy to handle when you're sitting in Jerusalem and you're going, "Wow, this is so good." And oh, thank you for that verse. I love that verse. But when you're over here, that verse almost makes you want to be mad. But it's truth. That's the hope that we have to have in Jesus. God never abandoned them in their captivity. And God is not abandoning you in whatever it is that you are going through right now. And hear me. God doesn't waste anything that has happened in your life. He uses it all. The good, the bad. Romans 8.28 tells us this. This is from the Message Translation, which I think says it great. That's why we can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Every detail. So you got to contend through those feelings when you want to give up. Why? Agonize through those because Christ so powerfully works in you. And right now, if In your life, something may be over. Something may be difficult. But let me just tell you, your life is far from over as far as God is concerned. It's not over until He says it's over. And so you contend for the sake of your own hope, thriving and surviving. But you also contend for the hope of those who are watching you. See, Paul puts it this way Colossians 1, or sorry, Colossians 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. He goes on, but he says, I'm fighting and contending. I'm in suffering, but I'm doing this for you. It wasn't just Paul's personal discipline to go through suffering to become better. And I believe that there's truth to that. I believe there is a sense where through suffering, I grow. And I grow to know God in ways I have never known him before. But what the enemy wants to do is the enemy wants to hijack those growth moments and say, don't even think about God that way. This suffering and hardship is because God's mad at you. And he wants to sever the sense of growing through that. And I can just tell you right now, a lot of Christians don't grow because they give up in those moments. Or they stop And they don't grow. And they turn the victim. And they say, oh, look at me, things are terrible. Let me get friends around me to talk about how terrible things are, because I'm the victim. Friends, when people watch Christians be victims, it makes me wanna puke. Let me just put it this way there is no such thing as a Christian victim. Okay, let me remind you what happened. It's called the cross, and then the resurrection, kind of a big deal to our Christian faith. He's called the victor. And when you want to kind of loathe around in oh, whole woe is me, I will lovingly slap you <laughs> via Facebook and say, get up. Who do you serve? Last I checked, he was a risen Savior who conquered death, hell, and the grave. I think he's got you. But Paul didn't turn in on himself and say, well, it was me, I'm going to give up. What did he do? He recognized there are people watching and they need to see what I believe inside, hope, Christ in me. And they need to see that. So here's the question as we we kind of land this plane today. Here's the question. Who is watching you? Who's watching you as you go through the struggles you're facing? Who's watching you when life is, well, it sucks? Who's watching you? There's a good chance some family are. There's a good chance some friends of yours are. There's a good chance some people who are far from God are watching you. And if all they see in you and in your faith is a victim mentality, then I would say, well, why do I want that Christian faith? I thought he was an overcoming Lord, a Savior. Sounds like he's a wimp. Who's watching? And do they see your hope in Christ? Or do they see hopelessness? Paul wasn't faking when he said, all this I'm doing for you. This hope I have inside in Christ, it's going to come through me. And it's going to go to you. You're going to see it. And friends, there might be people who are watching you from a distance and seeing how you're handling suffering, and they maybe want to know more about this God who sustains your hope in the midst of such difficult moments. To me, that's awe-inspiring. That is awe-inspiring. Not Christians on a Sunday morning dancing around to the happy tunes because it's church. What I love is when Christians stand strong in their hope in the midst of what looks the most hopeless. That. It's hard to argue with, friends. So people are watching. What do they see? Someone who's about to give up or someone who is resolving that their hope is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning you know the situations that each one of us face. You know the seasons that have come and gone in my life when I have called a lot of things into question. And you know the seasons of life that these people have gone through. And maybe they're in one right now where they have been just on the brink of giving up. God, I pray they would not miss this opportunity to see the best you still have for them. And how you will grow them. And how you'll be at work in them. In a way that will make them not only stronger in their hope in you, but a greater testimony of who you are to those that are watching. So, Lord, help us not to move to our human default, which is to complain and whine and be angry and bitter. We never grow through bitterness. We shrink. We never grow through being angry or vengeful. We shrink. We grow through hope. We grow when we know that your grace is at work in us. And that gives us hope. And that hope is contagious when others see it in us. So God, help us to stay rooted in Christ and the hope that we have in him, who so mightily works in us. And whatever we face today or tomorrow, when we hear the words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Jesus' name, amen.